0: Thanking people uh, is often one of the first skills we learn as, as kids, and as we move into adulthood, you often can sometimes measure somebody by their, their politeness or their courteousness by whether they say thank you for something. You know, holding open the door, wow, they didn't even say thank you. Or, you know, after you, you know, wait, a waiter or a waitress fills up your cup of water, like, thank you you know, thank you for doing that. And we teach kids early on, you know, okay, you know, grandpa, you know, we were just with uh, Katie's parents, and we were teaching Hudson Hills to say, can you say thank you to grandpa after he helped you with, you know, get your toy or whatever it is? Can you say thank you to grandma after that happened? So we teach kids early on, say thank you. It's a part of polite manners, and it's a part of us um, showing people our gratitude for what they do. And we, we tell people, thank you for... Uh, giving us a gift. When we receive a gift, we're opening presents at Christmas with my family or with Katie's family. We're early on teaching the kids, you know, very early. Okay, you open the present. Okay, who gave this to you? And you'll say thank you to, you know, Uncle uh, Dan and Aunt Kelly. Say thank you to Grandma and Grandpa. And it's like, okay, before, you know, oh, they just rip it open. And it's like, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play with it They're like, ah, where's the next present? No, no, stop for a second. Look at your uncle and aunt and say thank you. Thank you. And then usually they get so tra- trained so well at at least Katie's family anyway that they uh they just automatically they open it and then they just go
1: thank you cheese
0: and they're just looking for the camera we this eventually by the time they're like eight years old it's just like this automatic thing but they we're telling okay say thank you and then we all do the same thing we do this you know gift exchange and then we say you know thank you you know uh, sue for giving me whatever you gave me and so we teach our kids to say thank you and at a wedding many gifts are given and then the bride and groom spend hours after the wedding writing all these thank you cards. And if you, know, you don't give the gift, like, oh, I'm going to give this gift so that I get the thank you card, but if you know, six months or a year go down the line, you know what, I never got a thank you card for that gift I gave. And you would maybe be like, oh, that was kind of, you know, I didn't give it to get the thank you card, but I kind of, it would have been nice to get one. In the end, you know, we kind of expected it. Or the same goes for baby showers. You get all these gifts, and as it's going, oh, who gave that? Okay, you're writing it down so you can send a thank you card afterwards. And some of the most powerful expressions... A thankfulness come when someone's life um, is totally turned around by another person because of what someone else has done. And one one person says to another, I don't know where I would be if it weren't for you. You changed my life. you know, because when you get stuff at a wedding or you get stuff at Christmas, it's kind of like, well, that was like a nice thing added onto probably your life that was, you know already nice to begin with. It's like, well, I didn't really necessarily need that thing. Like that was nice to get. Um, whatever I got, you know, a sweet pair of socks with avocados on it, which is what I like, Um, or to get, okay, I got a new French press. Like, I didn't really need that thing. Like, that didn't change my life around. But when we have stories of, like, I don't know where I would be today without you. Like, you completely changed my life around. Those are when you find people, you know, having the biggest and deepest heartfelt expressions of gratitude and thankfulness. Like, I would not be here today unless it was for you, like, this person doing this thing in my life. This week, we're continuing this series called Pictures of Following Jesus, and we've talked about, the Bible talks about repenting, trusting, believing, having faith, but what does that all mean? And we're looking at these pictures of what does all those look like? What does belief and faith and trusting in Jesus, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And we're looking at all these pictures in the Bible of what it looks like to follow Jesus, and we've gone through, we will flip to the back of your songbook real quick, the very last page. Well, I have one that doesn't have the last page, apparently. But, oh, thank you, God. Look at that. I was going to test myself with my memorization, but thank you. Um, Very last page, number 46, is what's Good News Church all about? This has been our roadmap. Um, And we've done, uh, as a community, we're surrendering all of life to Jesus, inviting others to do the same. So we looked at what's a picture of surrender. We looked at um, somebody who gave it all up. Like, Jesus is the most valuable thing to me. Is God the most valuable thing to us? Is Jesus the most valuable thing to us? So we give things up for what's most valuable to us. What's most valuable in our life? What do we treasure the most? That's what we give things up to. That's what we sacrifice for. And so picture of surrender. Then we looked at what's a picture of the gospel. And we saw this picture of um, uh, the son being welcomed home um, with open arms, with love and affection, and this party being thrown for him. Maybe you can see it. Um, Here it is. So we have this party of this feast. Uh, this picture of a feast, a party being thrown, like God throws this party when sinners return to him. That's a picture of the gospel. And a picture of living as family, we saw that we don't do life alone, and we don't look to ourselves to to uh, do what God has called us to, then we look to God, so we're living life together with one another. And last week we, we saw a picture of loving his servants. Hopefully I can find it oh, it's down here. You know, so you can look at it after the service, but there's this person sitting on the side of the road, and we saw the, the, the story of the, the Samaritan who helps this guy beat up on the side of the road, and we saw that love makes us servants of people who have needs and calls us to serve people, that we're in a place to, to meet their needs. And so and we saw this picture of that. And this week we're looking at a picture of going as messengers. What does it look like? What's a picture of going as a messenger? of God, of going as a messenger of Jesus. And in this, we're going to have this theme of thanks, that when we're going as messengers, there's a theme, it's, a, it's about giving thanks, about um, someone we're thankful for, and then we're telling others about it. And we have this story in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, that we're going to be looking at. And we're just going to start, to start off on that theme of thanks, we're going to look at the end, we're going to look at a verse at the end, and then we're going to go back to the beginning And so, we didn't read this verse, but the last one of the last verses of this story, verse 19. So take a look at this verse, and then we're going to go back to the beginning to explain it. It's going to be kind of cryptic, but the main part of it is this. So verse 19 of Mark chapter 5, verse 19 says this, And he did not permit him, that part doesn't make sense yet, but said to him, here's the verse we're going to explain, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And so we're going to go back uh, and we're going to find out, well, how much has the Lord done for him? How has he had mercy on him? We heard some of that in the beginning of that story of what, what did Jesus do for him? We, in verse 20 it says, then he went away, began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which is just a region of like 10 cities, polis means city, deca, 10, um, the region of ten cities. How much Jesus had done for him. Everyone marveled. And so he, uh, how much? Tell people how much the Lord has done for you. And so we're going to go back. What did Jesus do for him? We're going to go back into the story and start uh, to to explain. To explain what is it that he's telling people that Jesus has done for him. So we're going to have three parts. Who is this man before encountering Jesus? What was this man's encounter with Jesus like? And then what? Who is this man after encountering Jesus? There's a before, there's, there's a before Jesus, there's a, his encounter with Jesus, and there's an after encountering Jesus. So before encountering Jesus, his encounter with Jesus, and then an after his encounter. So as before encountering Jesus is in Mark uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So before, before encountering Jesus, verses 1 through 5. So I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to list, we're going to look at uh, well, what was true of him. Uh, before he encountered Jesus. So verses 1 through 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. I said I'm going to read it, but let's just pause. Uh, So if we looked at the verses just prior to this, this is one of those famous times um, when Jesus gets in a boat, he's crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a big storm kicks up, and Jesus, the disciples are freaking out, we're going to die, and he calms the storm, and they're like, okay, that was pretty sweet. He lands on the other side, it's night when they're crossing, and he lands on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and then immediately as they land, you know, nighttime, going across, there's just this big storm. You know, imagine catching your breath after just surviving this big storm, and you're landing on the other side, and it's still like dark or the wee hours, you know, of the of dawn coming up maybe, and this guy comes running up, uh, and this is the guy that you're meeting, and he comes running up, and the country of the Gerasenes is just telling us that this is, they're out of Jewish territory, they're out of Israel's territory, they've gone over into Gentile or non-Jewish territory, Um, and so they're over, you know, kind of out of their home country, they've crossed over into non-Jewish territory out of their home country. And so verse 2 tells us, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So, you know, where they're burying people, out of the graveyard, out of the... You know, the holes in the side of the hill were the tombs where they're put in the dead bodies and burying people. This guy comes running out of there, still maybe a little dark in the day, comes running out of there. And now we get some backstory in verse 3. Okay, so who is this guy? Backstory. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And so that this is <clears throat> this guy before encountering Jesus. And so let's we're just going to list, you know, we have kind of like those are like the bare facts like on the surface of things, like kind of a physical description of him, but you can also go on the surface of like okay, what's this guy like? socially, what's he like emotionally? Like what is this guy's life like? So let's just write down what is this guy like? What's true of him before encountering Jesus? What's his life like? And we can kind of sometimes it's easy to think of these people in these stories like uh, okay, this is just some crazy dude. But this was a a guy. Like how did he get in this place? And what would it, you know, feel like to be this kind of person? Like imagine somebody in town who you knew growing up in high school. And then over the course of time he gets to be a guy like this. And you're like, Man, I just watched this guy's life slowly but surely get to this place. And so how do we how do we describe him? What's what's true of this guy's life at this moment? Self-harming. What was that? Self harming. Self harming.
1: He's an outcast.
0: Outcast? Yeah, he lives off by himself. In the graveyard. Son. Close in? that? Um. Unloved. Yeah. What did somebody say?
1: Son of his parents and possibly sibling of brothers and sisters. Son of brothers. someone? Part of the family, in other words. Yes. Yeah, possibly sibling. He didn't stop being a part of the family when the demons took it onto yeah. the
0: so yeah, in other words, he's estranged from someone. He could be a husband, of somebody. He could be a father of somebody. Yeah. So he's estranged, possibly from people.
1: He's a prisoner. Yeah. Living in bondage.
0: So prisoner, bondage.
1: Uh, you know, it's a lot of conjecture here, but. Possibly feared um, an object of stories by the kids in the community. <coughs> uh, you know, like that guy down at the tombs. We'll either be good or we'll take you down there.
0: I think, I mean, I yeah, it is, I mean, it's a little bit of conjecture, but it's like where did this little backstory come from? I mean, the people around that area that, Jesus wasn't from there, and so people are like, "Oh, here's the backstory on this guy."
1: Yeah. I mean, he 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 could still be loved by his mom, for instance. We don't know. Yeah. I oh, yeah, I think if, if they're chaining him up, he's they must be fearing him.
0: Yeah, yeah. they're trying. He's a menace of some sort. they like, "Well, we got to contain okay. this guy." Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that's true of him? How you describe him? Sinner. Sinner. Yeah, he's hurt people expect. He's strong. Which makes him scary.
1: <laughs> I would guess he's feeling either kind of hopeless or like out of control. Like I don't know how with it he is, but. <coughs> um, felt like he was crying out. in pain cutting yeah physical pain cutting himself uh, spiritual pain from <coughs> the muscle of the demons
0: yes, cutting himself he could be in, put in pain what's that by uh, many spirits yeah, he's a uh, disaster he's uh to the influence, darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this and that gives us. This, I mean, we could probably um, write more, and we could pre- we could maybe get into more. I mean, Bob had a good word of. Um, Conjecture, you know how far are we going, and like you know kind of guessing because the the we're not told that much, and so we can but we can guess like okay, this is like a normal guy uh, that was a normal guy, like you know it's not just some dude that just gets plopped into the book of the Bible for the sake of us being like, Oh, this is just some guy put in here for Jesus to heal like this is a real guy, that's why I wanted to do this that this guy has a before story, a before encountering Jesus story like. Anybody, all of us, and like anybody that we would meet um, in our community, and this you know, some of this we can be guessing, but some of it we can say like, well, for sure, that vice and what it says here, some of these things are true, And you know, we can, um, and some of it we might be guessing, but that's OK for us to try and get some compassion and some, you know, feel some, uh, <coughs> some, some empathy for him. And spirit we're seeing is. Spiritual warfare being worked out in this guy's life in a very physical way. It's being manifested in a very physical way. Obviously, uh, it's at a very high degree uh, in his life. And you can think of it in degrees or stages of how much spiritual warfare is being manifested in somebody's life. We don't know how it started for this guy. But it started at some point uh, and went down a path of gradual and incremental concessions. Down influence of darkness in his life, stage by stage it progressed, and the enemy took territory in his life until it had total possession and complete influence over it. So, what's the desire? We can see what's the desire of Satan for our lives, and what's why does he want to take step by step, incremental, gradual possession of it? He disguises the the hook with bait so that we'll swallow it. But this guy's life—look at the things that. He's experiencing. It's to torment and to destroy. And and so when we, where does he want to lead us when he's tempting us when he's trying to lead us? He wants to lead us towards tor- tormentation and destruction, even if it's a hook that looks tasty, you know, covered with something that makes it look good. But that ultimately, where he wants to lead us is tormenting and destruction. So that's his before. Story. Who was this man before encountering Jesus? In verses 6 through 13, we get what was this man's encounter with Jesus like? What was this man's encounter with Jesus like? So we'll look at those verses. Verses 6 through 8, I'll reread those. What was this man's encounter with Jesus like in verses 6 through 13? His encounter with Jesus. Verses 6 through 8 say this When he saw Jesus from afar, He ran and fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And we're given inside information in verse 1 that this man has an unclean spirit. And Jesus can see it from the start. and So he's... uh, the unclean spirit or the demons within the man recognize who Jesus is and they recognize Jesus' authority over them. You know, even demons recognize Jesus is in charge in this situation. The book of James this shouldn't surprise us, the book of James while talking about what true faith, true faith looks like in James chapter 2 verse 19 says true saving faith always has good works with it because even demons believe and shudder. Okay, so it says it's not enough just to say well I believe God exists. It, it requires us to do things, to live in light of that, to say, uh, I believe God exists, and I trust him, and I love him, I'm going to live my life according to that, because even the demons believe God exists and that he's one, and they, but they don't live in accordance with that reality. Demons have correct theology and doctrine. They know all the right answers about God, but they don't act accordingly. The demons know who Jesus is. They even come and bow down before him, we see recognizing his authority and lordship. He can do whatever he wants with them, and they recognize that. But yet, they aren't saying, oh, I trust you, I love you. None of bowing down before him, recognizing who he is, saying, you know, I believe Jesus is the Lord, I believe he's the Savior, I believe he's, you know, the King of the universe, he has authority, all authority in heaven and earth. None of that uh, is the same as trusting Jesus and loving Jesus. Trusting him as our Lord to... Direct us, to do good to us, to be our life and righteousness, to make us holy and blameless before <clears> God. None of it is loving who He is or what He's about. To, to just say, you know, okay, yeah, I recognize you are all these things, but to trust Him and love Him is a different thing. The, the man under the influence of the demons only begs Him not to torment Him. They think, Jesus, the King, is here. He must be here to bring judgment against us. And so they bow down before Him, but that doesn't mean they're saved. They're saying, okay, judgment time is here. That's why the king is here. Judgment time is here. They don't say, you know, Jesus, we love you. We love how merciful you are and good you are, and we want to start acting. We don't want to repent. We want to change our ways. We want to stop acting the way we're acting. We, we recognize you're the king. We want to start acting the way you would want us to act. No, they say, we know we've been acting wrong. I guess it's judgment time. <laughs> they don't repent. They don't change, even though they know who Jesus is. And we must make sure our relationship with God goes beyond head knowledge of knowing facts and information about God. It needs to go to the heart of trusting God and loving who he is and acting accordingly with our, with our hands and with our feet, not just saying, okay, I know all the right things about you, but I'm still just going to act however I want. Because that's how the demons are. They know everything about Jesus, but they still act however they want. And then when Jesus comes around, he's like, okay, I guess it's time to be judged for acting however I wanted. You know, They're still acting selfishly with themselves doing whatever they want to do. we need to go to the heart. Because even the demons can tell you that God exists and that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. And they shudder at it. They shudder at his presence. And yet they don't act any differently. In verse 9, it says, And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are Many. And this asking of the man's name reveals (coughs) the dire predicament he's in. The the man does not answer with his own name. I'm Bob. I'm Jim. The unclean spirit answers him. And the answer given is legion, for we are many. And a legion was a Roman military unit of 6,000 soldiers. And so the use of this word represents the large amount, such as one unclean spirit, represents the large amount of unclean spirits that this man has given into and allowed to come and influence his life, have taken possession of him. But it also represents the fact that this isn't just like, hey, we're just a group of people hanging out here, a group of demons hanging out here. It represents a military unit. This is a spiritual battle happening, and the battleground of where it's happening is, is a human being, a human being made in the image of God who has been dehumanized. I mean, this is... All the things that we read about what's true of him right now, he's just been totally dehumanized. He's not even acting like a human being. He's off, away from society, cutting himself, being destroyed. The image of God is being destroyed. And so there's a battle, a spiritual battle happening. But we've already seen that it isn't much of a battle because the legion of 6,000, that army, is bowing before the army of one. And verses 10-12 further emphasize this. Verse 12, or verse 10, And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us the pigs, let us enter them. The demons begged not to be sent out of the region. And the reason why isn't totally clear, we're not told. Instead, they begged to be sent into a nearby herd of pigs. And uh, verse 13 says, And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus gives them permission. And the herd of 2,000 pigs goes and is drowned. And we may think, well, that's weird. Why would Jesus not just be like, no, I'm not going to do what you ask, demons. I'm just going to, it's destruction time, bye-bye. Uh, well, there, I mean, there's um, multiple, a couple different reasons why um, Jesus would give g- demons, you know, give, you know, let them do uh, something like this. Um, one is, I mean, it's not, it's not their time. We see in the Book of Revelation that their time of destruction, to be thrown in the Lake of Fire, is at the end when Jesus finally returns. That Jesus. Um, is binding Satan's power, and it's time for the gospel to be proclaimed so people can come to believe in him. And ultimately, Satan's final judgment is going to happen when he returns. And so, final judgment isn't now, and so he doesn't ultimately destroy them, but he sends them off to a different host, takes them out of this guy, sends them to a different host. Um, it also shows, like, hey, this guy isn't just crazy, uh, he's actually got a spiritual issue. Jesus knows the, the difference between somebody with, that has a disease or a sickness, and somebody with demons uh, influencing them. And he, already in the book of Mark, he shows he knows the difference. He knows when somebody has uh, seizures due to demons, or somebody is having a disease and has issues due to something else. He cures, heals diseases, he casts out demons. And so this guy isn't just like, you know, psychological issues. It's like, there's something else here. And the, the pigs show, I just took something out of him, and that's the, the issue that was happening here. physically showing that that happened but what can we see from this encounter with Jesus this is like he had his before now he has this encounter with Jesus verse 4 said this uh, three three things point out with one conclusion about them verse 4 said no one had the strength to subdue him and that just sticks out because in only a few verses later who actually does subdue him? No one had the strength to subdue him. Who subdued him now? Jesus. Jesus subdued him. And he didn't use chains. He didn't, use, didn't pin him down. Alright, I've got 12 guys with me. Everybody jump on him and pin him down. We're going to make this happen. We're going to chain him up. No, all these guys couldn't do it. We're going to chain him up and we're going to take care of this. He does it with a word. The, who, the demons bowed on before him. So no one had the strength to subdue him. That's one point. Jesus is in total control against the legion of demons. Sixth legion, where many, they bow down before him. And they beg him, do not torment me. And he tells them what to do. They beg him to do things. "Please Please don't send us out of the region. Please send us to the pigs. And they're just begging him. He's in total control against the legion of demons. It doesn't matter how many there are. They're the ones who bow down before Jesus. And he tells them what to do. Not that they're on his side, but they know who's ultimately in charge. Thirdly, Jesus does for this man what he was powerless to do for himself. Jesus does for him what he was powerless to do for himself. That this power that had overtaken him did all this to him. And you know, We saw, I mean, some of the things that he's doing to himself could be expressions of, you know, there's still something of him left. It's not that he's uh, just gone, he's taken over like a robot. It's like, I want to be free of this. This is horrible. This is tormenting. And I don't think it's just that, yeah, he's being controlled as a robot, but the cutting and the things, if you've ever uh, talked to somebody who says, like, I think I have demon in my life you you see them saying i'm just in anguish and torment and they want to be free of it and they go to places like self-harm and feeling hopeless and despair and he want i'd imagine that this man wanted to be free of it he feels powerless to do it and so and other people are powerless to do this for him too trying to chain him up and move. what are they going to do they're trying to modify his behavior so okay you're a You're an issue to all of us. We're going to chain you up so you don't hurt us, you don't hurt other people. And Jesus does for him what he's powerless to do for himself. And so the truth we learn about Jesus is that Jesus is a mighty king. Jesus is a mighty king. This man comes face to face with him. He has an encounter with Jesus as a mighty king. (coughs) Jesus is a mighty king. So that was his... We heard his before story. We saw his encounter with Jesus. Lastly, we see who was this man after encountering Jesus. And that's the final parts, verses 14 through 20. We also get mixed in other people's responses to Jesus as well. So who is this man after encountering Jesus? Mark 5, verses 14 through 20. Verse 14 tells us this. The herdsmen, you know, the people taking care of the pigs, 2,000 of them, <coughs> herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. So the, the told it word, the herdsmen fled and told it, uh, is actually the word for announce, which is often used in the Bible. Um, for announcing good news or when we're told to be messengers, they announced it. So they go announce this news in the city and in the country, and people came to see what has happened. They come to see what Jesus has done. And news is getting out about what Jesus has done for this guy. And so what has he done? What's he like now? The, the encounter before was this mix of both talking to the man and talking to the demons that have held on to his life. You know, who is he talking to? If you watch the, the language go back and forth, sometimes it's like he answered, the man answered. Sometimes it's they answered. You know, who is he talking to? He's talking to like both the man and these demons. What's the man like now after this encounter with Jesus? What's he like now that Jesus has freed him from this demonic influence? What will the people come to see that Jesus has done for him? Remember, the end of the story is, go, and tell, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. What are these people going to come see that Jesus has done for him? Verse 15 tells us, And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, The one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. So there's a total change of character. This is no longer the guy living in the tombs. No longer that guy that people have to bind with chains to keep others safe. No longer the crazy guy, no longer crying out and yelling, no longer the one cutting himself with stones. No longer the person other people have to try to hold down and subdue. That was him before. Now he is clothed in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet, calm. And how do they react? It says they were afraid. Why? Why were they afraid? Why would they react with fear at seeing this? Remember what verse 4 said. No one had the strength, strength to subdue him. No one. No one from the town, no one from the country. No one. But now he's sitting at Jesus' feet like everything's fine. Verse 16 says this. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs. The full story is out. Who, who did this? Jesus is the one who has done this. No one had the strength to subdue this man, but Jesus did. And they tried their hardest just to manage the demonic influence in this guy's life. And their best solution was to try to put shackles on him, but that didn't work. Who knows? Maybe they were part of kind of pushing him out of the city. This guy is just becoming too much, too much of a menace. We've got to push him out. You know, Maybe he chose to live out in the tombs. Maybe that's kind of where the demons drove him out to. But they might have also been the ones, we've got to get this guy out of here. and Let's put some chains on him too. He's a menace to our city. And their best solution was to try to put shackles on him, but that didn't work. He broke them. Jesus has done far more than what any of them could do. He's restored him from the inside out. They try to fix this internal issue by stopping the behavior. But Jesus went right to the source. Now the man sitting in front of them is not the man that they knew. And so what would they do? Thank him? Worship him? Ask him? Could you do the same in our lives if you could do this for him? Could you do it for us too? I mean, I have some, I don't have issues like him, but I've got some issues and I've got an, I've got an uncle, I've got a kid, I mean, we've got issues, you know, other people in other places, they see Jesus heal, they see Jesus cast out demons and they bring, oh my gosh, bring our relatives, we know people with the issues, let's bring them to Jesus and have them heal. No. They beg him to leave. Look at verse 17. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. <laughs> Why do they beg Jesus to leave? <coughs> One reason is an economical one, perhaps. Jesus did cost them a herd of 2,000 pigs. Well, Jesus, if he's going to you know, mess things up this bad, the eyewitness explained everything that had happened. So they know Jesus is the one who sent the demons and the pigs, and maybe they're like, well, I don't know about this demon thing, but you just got rid of our herd of pigs, and so we don't want that to happen. We're happy about that loss. But we were told in verse 15, that the economical one doesn't seem like the best explanation. We were told in verse 15 that they're afraid. They see this man that no one could subdue. No one had the strength. And now they see him sitting calm in front of Jesus, not only subdued, but totally different. Jesus has come into this Gentile region. He's made a huge change by healing a man possessed by demons who had superhuman strength, who had been a menace to the region, and whom others were unable to successfully subdue. And yet, yet this demon-possessed man was a disturbing presence. He was a disturbing presence that no one could subdue. So how much more of a disturbing presence was someone who could subdue the man that no one could subdue? (laughs) Jesus has subdued the the man that no one had strength to subdue. So how much stronger is Jesus? How much more mighty is Jesus? Jesus' power was too much for them. And so they asked him to leave. The demon-possessed man experienced Jesus as a mighty king who used his power and authority to save him. But it's precisely because Jesus is a mighty king with great power and authority that this local crowd asks him to leave. And we may think that uh, that's odd. What, what? Why wouldn't we want this kind of person around who can do this sort of thing? But don't we often want God to be a little less mighty, powerful, and in charge? Wouldn't we want him to be a little more predictable and operate more in line with our expectations and more according to our plans? In fact, we'd like to be a little more in charge and have him enact the changes that we'd like him to put in our place. We'd like to be a little more in charge and him to be a little less in charge and a little less powerful. You know, I don't want to be the one bowing down. Like, if he's the one who can subdue the one that no one else could subdue, well, that means he's the one in charge. And we don't want someone like that around. Having someone around who has the might, power, and authority to subdue the one that no one can subdue is threatening. And that makes you feel small and out of control. And Jesus only just arrived, and he's already made a big change. What other kind of changes is he going to make if he sticks around? The people beg him to leave. They don't want someone that powerful around, and they're afraid. And Maybe we ask ourselves, are, you hold, are we holding on to control of our lives? Do we want someone that mighty and powerful and in charge in our lives? Like What would it look like to let somebody like that into my life? I mean, I have to give up all my control he has to be in charge if he's that big and powerful. And the scary part of this interaction is that Jesus actually does leave. He says, if we beg Jesus to leave, he will. If we don't want his authority over our life, he will leave us to ourselves. And that's scary. If we will not surrender and give up control, he will let us have our life how we want it without him. In verse 18, we return to the demon-possessed man. As he was getting into the boat, this is him leaving the region like they asked, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Now the man also begs Jesus. Everyone in this story has begged Jesus. Under the influence of the demons, the man begged Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country. And then the demons begged Jesus saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. The local crowd begged Jesus to depart from their region. And now the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. So is Jesus going to let him? Verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. The man whom Jesus freed is the only one to whom Jesus says no. Jesus gave the demons what they requested because their judgment time had not yet come. Jesus gave the local crowd what they requested because they didn't want his authority in their lives. This man is the only one responding rightly to Jesus' authority. And Jesus doesn't give him what he wants. Everyone begs Jesus for something. And the guy who actually wants to follow Jesus is the only one he says no to. Why? Because he has a different purpose for his life. Now that Jesus is Lord of his life in a true way, oh, now he's, I'm going to direct your purposes. Sometimes we may look around at people who aren't following Jesus and think, well, they're getting everything they want in life, and it's not fair because I'm following Jesus and I'm not getting what I want. He keeps telling me no. But the fact is, that they don't have Jesus because they've rejected him. And they might be getting everything they want, and it isn't a good thing because they're getting what they've asked for, but they don't have Jesus. We aren't getting what we asked for because he has a different purpose for us. We may be saying, Jesus, I want this. Please give me this. This is what I like. And he said, No, I want you to do this. And we have him, and they don't. So what does the man do? Verse 20. And he went away... He began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus told him, Go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. I always had mercy on you. But what does he do? He proclaims how much Jesus has done for him. And everyone marveled. He's making a connection. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord of my midst. He's God in my midst. He's seeing Jesus as more than uh, meets the eye. And Jesus came across the Sea of Galilee, calmed the storm on the way, cast the demons out of this man, and then crossed back over. Would he just come over the sea for this one guy? He left this one man as a witness of what he came over there and did. This man, we think of Paul as the first missionary to the Gentiles. This man is the first missionary to the Gentiles. The first one who's a witness to the Gentiles over in the Decapolis, this non-Jewish region. And he begs Jesus to be with him. Jesus tells him, no. Go tell everyone you know how much the Lord has done for you. Go back to those you know. And he's totally obedient. He tells everyone how Jesus, the Lord, had mercy on him. And if you wanted to sum up the truth this man has learned about Jesus, (coughs) it's this. We did the first one already. Jesus is a mighty king. Second is this. Jesus is a mighty and merciful king. Jesus is a mighty and merciful king. Not only is he a mighty king, the son of the most high God with great authority and power, but he has mercy and compassion on needy people in desperate situations. That's what he's told. Go back and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. This man learned it firsthand and he became a messenger of this mighty and merciful king, telling others how much Jesus had done for him. And this is a picture of, following Jesus, picture of a messenger. So he, if you watch what happens, he has this before, he has an encounter with Jesus, he's changed by Jesus, then he has this desire to be with him. I mean, that was a choice. Jesus didn't say like, okay, you have a desire to follow me, now I'm going to change you. He just changes him. He does that out of his mercy. And then the guy sitting at Jesus' feet then says, I want to be with you, I want to follow you now. Some God gives out of his grace and mercy he gives us good things, whether we we're going to follow him or not. That's called grace. It's undeserved. And then he chooses to follow him. So he's changed by Jesus, desires to be with him. And then Jesus says, no, I want you to go do this And And he has total obedience. Do whatever he says, even if it wasn't what we wanted at first. And what he wants him to do is tell others how much Jesus has done for him. And that's what it means to be a messenger of Jesus, for all of us to be witnesses, tell others how much Jesus has done for us, that we witnessed. We have a before and a before Jesus and an after Jesus story, and we tell people how much Jesus has done for us. Following him is about being changed by him, obeying him, and telling others about him. And so the question I have for you is, do you know your before and after story? Do you know your before and after story? And if so, I really want you to think about this, do you know your before and after story? And if so, when was the last time you shared it with someone? Do you know your before and after story? And if so, when was the last time you shared it with someone? And I'll, I'll give you a moment to think about that because it's convicting for me to think about that. Do you know your before and after story? And if so, when was the last time you shared it with someone? For, for me, if you're thinking, I can't remember the last time I shared it, um, that's the boat I'm in too, and so that's a convicting question for me, I was like, man, I don't, I don't know the last time I shared uh, my before knowing Jesus, and my after knowing Jesus, and um maybe you're like me, and you think well, I, uh, it was kind of a gradual thing for me, and so I don't have a story like this, you know, like that's really radical, like this guy, it was maybe a gradual thing, um but for all of us, you know, do you say to Jesus I don't know where I would be if it weren't for you. You changed my life. You know, or do we think, well Jesus kind of added a couple good things to my life. Kind of like Christmas time. We get a couple nice things and they kind of get added to our nice good life that we already have already. Or is it like I wouldn't, do not know where I would be without you. I would not be the same person. I would just be dead in my sins and trespasses and life would not be the same. And For us, how much we think Jesus has done for us will determine what kind of messengers we are. If we think Jesus hasn't really done very much for us, we will be bad messengers. We won't have any sort of motivation or compulsion or or desire to tell other people because we'll be like, you know, like, I mean, I don't really feel a great need to tell all of you that, even though I said it today, to tell you, like, guess what? Uh, Katie's sister, Sue, Give me a French press, you know, for Christmas this year. Like, you know, that wasn't like a life-changing thing for me. I'm not like telling people about that every day. Because it's not like, oh, she just did this amazing thing for me that changed my life. Like, how much we think Jesus has done for us will determine what kind of messengers we are. So I'm not a very great messenger. uh, I appreciate it, and I said thank you, and I like it, and I use it every day. But it's not like that just radically changed my life. And if we think, you know, Jesus kind of like tweaked my life a little bit, and it's kind of like this nice thing I do on Sundays, or it's this thing, that, you know, I kind of like serve a lot, uh, so that's kind of a nice thing I do for God, or like the church, like I do, but where would I be? I would be here. Like if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy in my life, this is where I would be. If he wasn't withholding the effects of sin, if he wasn't protecting me from Satan, and even if if in the end I know that sin and Satan would just carry me down a horrible path if it wasn't for his gracie, grace and mercy, that this is where I would be. I'd be in the same boat as this guy. And if we don't think that, if we don't think that that's how much Jesus has done for me, we will be horrible messengers. If we think that you know, God, Jesus kind of tweaked my life a little bit and added some good things to my good life I already have, we will not be good messengers because we'll think, you know, I pretty much did this on my own. My before story just needed a little cleaning up. And so Jesus did a little cleaning up for me, and you know I could have probably done it myself, but you know I had a church and God in to help me out. And something I found helpful for me is that uh, to remember when I uh, feel that I am forgetting that. There's a practice I've done. I think I've mentioned it before. Is um, when I uh, confess. One reason we confess sin on Sundays, before we take the Lord's Supper, um, is so we can remind ourselves, this is what Jesus has done for me. And one of the things to remind ourselves is, and this is what I deserve when I say I confess this sin. It's not just like, okay, like I confess that and Jesus paid for it. Cool. But this is actually what I deserve for it. And I was just uh, we just had our um, annual uh, theology conference for our denomination. And the very last talk was on the doctrine of hell. the very last point made was that the doctrine of hell, um, we need to be reminded of it because it is cause uh, for amazing praise to God. That's what we all deserve. And yet we don't when we trust in Jesus. Because when we confess our sin, we can say, uh, and this is what I deserve for it. That I deserve eternal conscious punishment for this. And yet Jesus took that for me and paid for it. And so if we cannot say, Jesus, this is how much you've done for me, that you suffered in my place for that, that the suffering you took was not just on a, you know, by Roman soldiers on a piece of wood, that you actually suffered the penalty for my sin and all its horribleness and all, this, all of this that I should be getting, you took it all in my place. If we don't think Jesus did all that for us when we confess our sin and say, this is what I've done today. When I didn't love my neighbor or love my spouse or love my kids, when I was selfish today, that this is what I deserve for it. And we just say, Oh, you know, so I'm sorry for being impatient today, God. You know, please forgive me. We say, and What I deserve for that impatience is your just judgment. And Jesus took that in my place by dying. I deserve death. Thank you so much for taking that in my place. We will be bad messengers. We'll never be good messengers unless we can say, God, this is how much Jesus has done for me. And now I want to tell others how much he's done for me. And so when we think about our before and after story, we think about before, who are we before encountering Jesus? As I said, this guy's story was very physically visible. And my story was not very physically visible like his. I grew up in a home where we went to church services. And it was a gradual thing of understanding God's grace, but when I look back, am I able to say those ways I treated people and those ways I treated God in those times, even though I didn't live this life of, you know, I can't say like, oh, you know, I went out partying and drinking or, you know, any, you know, those things, I didn't have this life that many people maybe think like, oh, there's just this huge radical change, but can I still say, you know, the ways I looked at people and treated people and and acted towards people like, I still deserved hell for all that. Can I say that? And it's hard to say that sometimes because I think, you know, God just kind of buffed up my life. I had a few, you know, dents and nicks and God buffed it up. And that makes me a bad messenger unless I can say, no, I deserved hell for that. And God saved me. And maybe for you, you can say, no, I really did feel like this guy. Like my life was a mess, a huge mess. And God saved me from that. And so, who were you before encountering Jesus? What was your encounter with Jesus like? Who were you? after encountering Jesus. And as we do that, I want to challenge you this week to write that down. Your before, when was it, and what were you like after. Write it down. And pray every day for an opportunity to share it this week. Um, And maybe even take out your phone uh, right now and put an alarm in it. Like, I'm going to pray at 7 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. And God formed us to be a community of thanks. Thanklessness and ingratitude is one of, the, uh, one of the marks of lack of worship of God when God talks about, you're not worshiping me. He says, you're thankless. You lack gratitude. Um, so when we lack gratitude for our salvation and the joy of it, it shows, man, we're not worshiping God for uh, the most amazing thing He's done for us, which is saving us from His just judgment of what we deserve. So, Let's pray. Join me in prayer for us to be a community of thanks. Father, would you make us messengers of your mercy, of Jesus being our mighty King, who has the authority, <coughs> the power, the strength to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and has the mercy that makes him willing and desiring and longing to do it, if we would only turn to Him. Would you make us joyful, courageous, dependent messengers uh, who tell that news um, to all who are willing to listen to all you put across our path? Uh, would you make us keenly aware of our before and after stories? And those stories are even writing day by day as we encounter you afresh our worship gatherings and um, in our Bible reading and as we meet uh, with one another to read your word. And Father, would you make us a community of thanksgiving and gratitude for how much Jesus has done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.